Hello and welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, the second edition. This is your host, Scott, the anesthesia resident. All right, thanks for tuning in to episode 11 of the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast. Uh, today is part three of the Trauma Anesthesia Series, and uh, specifically today we're going to talk about shock and general intraoperative management. One thing I forgot to mention uh, in the previous episodes, uh, the source I'm using for uh, the information in these um, episodes, and basically I'm using three textbooks. Basically, uh, Baby Miller, Basics of Anesthesia, uh, is chapter 42 specifically, Barish, uh, Clinical Anesthesiology, chapter 53, and then Morgan and McHale, also clinical anesthesiology um, is chapter 39 of the most recent editions as of October 2022. Okay, um, so that's the, the source. And if you have the time, I would encourage you to take the pre-test uh, survey at this point. But if not, let's uh, kind of just get right into it. This one's going to be a relatively long one, uh, lots of stuff to cover today, but hopefully it's still high yield for you and you learn a lot and uh, something that you can directly apply to your your training and practice. So super excited for this one. Let's go ahead and get started. So the first thing we're going to talk about today is management of shock and trauma. So first of all, let's, let's kind of like uh, define what shock is. So in the simplest sense, Shock is defined as global tissue hypoperfusion. So you're not getting enough oxygen to the tissue. And then it can't go through aerobic uh, respiration. It can't go through Krebs cycle. It can't make ATP. And as such, you uh, end up dying, basically. Um, so the idea is uh, when a patient goes into shock, they're just not perfusing their tissue. Um, and as you already know, there's many different types of shock. So, for example, hypovolemic shock, hemorrhagic, septic, cardiogenic, neurogenic, and so on and so forth. But in the case of trauma, the usually, usually the most common cause of shock and trauma is hemorrhagic, unless you know you have some sort of neural involvement as well. But again, uh, the most common shock in trauma is hemorrhagic. But even though this is the case, you still have your differentials uh, when a trauma rolls in. So the major differentials that uh, you'll have when a trauma comes in are four things, at least four things. One, massive hemorrhage. Two, tension pneumothorax. Three, cardiac tamponade. And four, severe cardiac contusion. So there's different tests and exam findings that you can use to kind of rule in, rule out these different kind of things. So massive hemorrhage. Obviously, if you do a good physical exam, you'll see that the patient's bleeding everywhere. So most likely, it's some sort of hemorrhage things going on. And of course, as part of the trauma workup, usually you have someone doing the EFAS as well. So you can find out if there's any source of internal bleeding as marked by anechoic regions in like the different uh, areas for the EFAS as well as like you're doing a quick TTE to find out there's any pericardial fusions, which kind of brings us to the cardiac tamponade. If you see a lot of blood within the pericardium and then, it's, then you have in a setting of shock, most likely 
that is cardiac tamponade, right? So that you utilize the TTE to figure this out. And in a lot of cases, the the best view to kind of take a global picture of this and the easiest one to, to obtain is actually the subcostal view. Because if you tried the previous one, uh, other types of TTE windows, you'll find that some of them are actually kind of difficult, especially if a patient has a difficult body habitus. So trying to get like a four chamber and like a BMI 50 patient is you know, it's going to be difficult. Everything's going to be more difficult, but in terms of the ease of obtaining a view, subcostal is probably one of the easiest ones and the highest yield. So that's cardiac tamponade. Next is tensioning with thorax. So again, you, as we discussed in the previous episode, different clinical exam findings, for example, diminished breath sounds, decreased saturation, cyanosis, all that good stuff. And part of the EFAS, you can check for lung sliding as well. So if there's a lack of lung, lung sliding and you toss on an M mode and you see like a barcode sign or other name for it is stratosphere sign, then most likely it's a pneumothorax. And uh, you can treat that with, as you recall from previous episode, first the needle decompression and then advance to a chest tube. And lastly, another differential for shock and trauma or severe cardiac contusion. And you can usually figure this out using the TTE, pretty much seeing this uh, any regional wall motion abnormalities or anything that's, you know, abnormal for, for, for the heart. So again, different differential diagnosis in trauma uh, usually uh, would include massive hemorrhage, tensioning with RX, cardiac tamponade, and severe cardiac contusion. Okay, next we're going to talk about the classes of hemorrhage. And this is something that usually shows up in exams and it's kind of hard to, uh, <laughs> to memorize but hopefully uh, we go over it a little bit and then it kind of just makes a little bit more sense. So there's four types of, of hemorrhage, right? So class one, two, three, and four. And we kind of go through these one by one. So class one hemorrhage is, there is hemorrhage, but heart rate does not change. Blood pressure does not decrease. And this is generally uh, when there's less than 15%, 1.5, of circulating blood volume loss. So... Basically, at this point, your body it, or the patient's body is still able to compensate for the blood loss, and that's why you don't see any big changes in the vitals. Okay, that's class one. No changes in the vitals, less than 15% loss of circulating blood value. Class two, now you're starting to see the sympathetic response. You started to compensate for the blood loss. So basically, you add another 15%. So... Uh, in class two is 15 to 30% blood loss or blood volume loss. And regarding the blood pressure, you see diastolic pressure increase due to vasoconstriction. The heart rate, it also increases to maintain the cardiac output. So, and at this point, you could give crystalloids to kind of expand the intravascular volume. Um, but at this point, uh, the, it's a good idea to have blood ready and ready to transfuse for these patients. So again, class two, sympathetic response starts to uh, uh, help compensate 15 to 30% blood volume loss, increase in diastolic pressure, and increase in heart rate. Okay, so that's class two. Class three, you add another 10% to the percent volume loss. So that's class three is classified as 30 to 40% loss of the circulating blood volume. You have a decrease in blood pressure overall. And basically the other's compensatory mechanisms 
The sympathetic responses, for example, the tachycardia, vas constriction is not able to keep up. And at this point, you definitely will notice uh, metabolic acidosis in these patients as they are not perfusing due to the blood loss, they're having hemorrhagic shock, and the body has to undergo anaerobic respiration to kind of produce ATP, right? So this is when you see more cases like lactic acidosis and um, metabolic acidosis is just in general. So class 3, 30 to 40% loss in circulating blood volume, and then the compensatory mechanisms are not able to keep up. So then you'll see decreased blood pressure and whatnot. Okay, class 3. Now, lastly, class four, this is specifically life-threatening, and this is when you have greater than 40% loss of the circulating blood volume, and at this point, patient is out. They're unresponsive, profoundly hypotensive, and at this point, you definitely, definitely need rapid control of the bleeding and replace the, the blood loss. So this is when you're or activating the MTP, you're rapidly transfusing, and this is also the point when you have the trauma-induced coagulopathy that we discussed in the first episode of the series. So you're definitely monitoring the tag and you're going to replace blood products accordingly. So class four, life-threatening, greater than 40% circling blood volume. Okay, so those are the four classes of hemorrhage. And just so we really hammer it home, quick review of all four. Class 1, less than 15% loss of circling blood volume, no changes in vitals. Class 2, 15 to 30% volume loss, and then you're starting to see sympathetic responses compensate, so increase in diastolic pressure, increase in heart rate. Class 3, 30 to 40% loss in the circling blood volume, and your compensatory mechanism is not able to keep up, and you start to notice increase in metabolic acidosis. And lastly, class four, life-threatening. This is when you lose 40, greater than 40% of loss of uh, circling blood volume, unresponsive, profoundly hypotensive, and requires MTP. Okay, and I guess this next fact is not necessarily fit under anything right now, but I just put it into my notes. The ideal blood pressure and trauma per um, bearish is around 100 to 110 uh, systolic. But uh, we'll kind of talk about uh, resuscitation uh, later on in this episode. Okay, so this next section is on markers of organ perfusion. So we kind of talked about metabolic acidosis uh, and ongoing shock, and we have issues with perfusion, but like, how do we actually measure it? So the major things that we can measure during a trauma are the base deficit, blood lactate, and hemoglobin. And these are great things to, to measure in kind of assessing your resuscitation effort and the basically the overall organ perfusion. So first is the base deficit. And this is the amount of blood, or sorry, this is the amount of base in the blood. So for example, if a patient becomes acidotic, like for example, uh, they have increased lactic production due to poor oxygen perfusion, it would decrease the amount of base due to the buffering effects. So then the more acid it is, the more deficit you get. So then if you get an ABG, you'll, you'll see an increase, I guess, decrease in the, in the negative number. So the more negative number, the worse the perfusion. 
So then I, based on that, I'm going to just kind of go over like the, the base deficit range and the cate- category of shock. So if you get an ABG back and then you see something between negative two to negative five that is classified as a mild shock, negative six to negative nine is moderate shock. Anything greater or more than negative 10 is severe shock. And generally speaking, you can use this to determine your the need for resuscitation. So whether it be more blood products or more crystalloids or uh, colloids. So basically, the more negative number, the, more, the worse the shock is. So then it's going to tell you, you need to do more than what you're currently doing. So having these uh, repeat uh, labs through your your ABG from your A-line is going to be very important during trauma cases. So kind of just to drive this point home, the base deficit, it reflects the severity of shock, the oxygen depth, and changes in oxygen delivery, as well as the, uh, as we kind of discussed, the adequacy of fluid and resuscitation. Okay, and uh, according to Barish, it actually is a better prognostic uh, marker uh, for resuscitation uh, than arterial pH. And lastly, regarding base deficit, admission, you know, fun fact, admission base deficit less than negative 5 to negative 8 is associated with increased mortality. Okay, so that's base deficit. Next, blood lactate. So, this is not as specific of a marker of tissue hypoxia compared to de- base deficit, though elevated lactate does correspond to other signs of hypoperfusion. Uh, levels greater than 5 millimoles per liter suggests a significant uh, lactic acidosis. And lastly, uh, hemoglobin is also a great uh, marker to use, especially when you're trying to transfuse RBCs. And we kind of talked about it in a previous episode, but the target for all phases of management during the trauma case is approximately between seven to nine. Okay, so this next section, we're going to talk about like the general idea of resuscitation. And as we kind of alluded to in the previous episode, as shown in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, whole blood transfusion is actually far superior than our civilian counterparts in which we use kind of like differentiated uh, blood products. So we have the PRBCs, we have cryo, we have FFP. We just split it up just because it was easier to to store. But based on the experiences in the military, for trauma cases, whole blood transfusion is uh, far superior. So that's why in, in trauma, we generally try to resuscitate in a one-to-one-to-one ratio. And this is the ratio from PRBCs to plasma to platelets. And generally, this is done during the MTP, the Massive Transfusion Protocol. And one thing to, to consider when doing MTP is the size bore of the IV catheter that you're using and using that versus like say like a, a central line or something and to kind of drive a point home and this is actually something that's kind of board relevant as well is i'm going to put your name but Pasvelli Pasvelli Pasvelli's law so basically it tells you is like the formula that tells you like uh, the resistance to flow so uh, according to this uh, law there's a formula resistance is equal to 8 times N or the viscosity times the length of the tube divided by pi R to the fourth power. So basically, based on this formula, if you have 
a smaller radius, you can have more resistance. And if you have a longer tube, you can have more resistance. So that's why in some cases, it's better to have a large bore IV to transfuse blood and uh, just resuscitate in general versus having like a smaller bore, longer central line. So that's why like when, when you learn in school, for example, GI bleeds, and then one of the protocol is doing two large bore IVs, right? They didn't say put in a central line. Like the answer is always two large bore IVs. And this is the reason why. Like you have a shorter length and you have a bigger radius so you can push fluid real quick into the patient. So that's that's the reason why uh, we use, or you can use large bore IVs. And of course, you, there are uh, large bore central lines as well. Which, so that's also an option. But then uh, for resuscitation purposes and speed, having large bore IVs is, is should be adequate for MTPs. The ideal bore is like 16s or bigger, so 16 or 14, because 16s you're able to push in like 300 cc's per per minute or something like that. Okay, so that's like the general discussion on resuscitation. Okay, so now we get to the fun part, the intraoperative management of trauma. So we'll kind of break it up in a few parts. From the aura setup to induction and maintenance, monitoring, and then lastly, we'll wrap up the episode by talking about the three phases of managing trauma patients. For basic aura setup, and we're going to go very basic, you want to have the room as uh, warm as possible that's like feasible for the staff there. Because remember, that's one of the components of the triad of, of death, right? Uh, hypothermia. So you want to have the room at a reasonable warmth so then the patient is not losing heat through the cold room. And it's especially bad when you're giving the patients anesthetics and you have vasodilation, you're removing more heat from the body faster. So maintaining a normal body temp is super important for, for traumas. Speaking of which, having IV fluid warmers and rapid diffusion devices ready. If the patient's not intubated already, make sure you have the equipment like you usually do. So having a backup difficult airway equipment, things like glide scopes and fiber optic, in addition to your DL equipment. Obviously, you want to have your suction to make sure it's working because some of these patients could come up with blood everywhere and you want to make sure that you're able to clear the airway and uh, intubate if needed. And lastly, if you don't have adequate IV access, have the, the equipment ready and possibly have a central line if they need it for the ICU. Okay, so induction and maintenance. We have like a few important concepts I want to discuss before we kind of go into like nitty gritty details. So first of all, a patient who is hemodynamically unstable will tolerate significantly less medications for induction and maintenance than the normal patient. So it means that you don't have to dose the usual amount, especially if they're like a class four hemorrhage or something. And the reason for this is there's basically a decrease in size of the central compartment and then and basically a decrease in systemic clearance as well. Another thing to keep in mind for anesthetic agents is that they have direct cardiovascular depressant effects and inhibits compensatory hemodynamic mechanisms, as you, uh, you know. And again, uh, hemorrhage and hypovolemia 
alters the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of most anesthetic agents. And like we kind of discussed already, like it leads to higher than normal blood concentration. And this has especially been seen in, in animal studies in which they kind of cause hemorrhage in pigs. So they gave some pigs some propofol. And in the setting of a compensated hemorrhage, the concentration increase was a little bit less than 20%. But when the pigs had uncompensated shock, the profile concentration increased by four times. And they did the same thing with uh, remifentanil as well. It went from double the concentration in compensated shock to 27 times in uncompensated shock. So this concept kind of uh, drives it home. In the setting of shock, you don't need that much. So less is more uh, in, in terms of trauma. So start low, titrate up. That's basically it. Okay, so that's the important concept. Now we kind of move on to talking about different anesthetic agents. So in severe injuries with profound hypertension, you could still use propofol, but then you're going to use like a lower dose than you usually do. Usually in like a standard reduction, you do like what? One to two milligrams per kilo. But in terms of trauma and profound hypertension, you're going to drop it by half or even do the quarter of the usual dose. So 0.25 to 0.5 mix per kg. So again, it's like not, not as much as the normal healthy patient. Another option is cytomany. And you still use the, uh, pretty much the same dosage as you would in the standard reduction. It's like 0.3 mix per kg. The great thing about cytomany that it helps preserve the sympathetic tone, but it's not to say that it completely preserves it or is completely free of possible hemodynamic collapse. So give it carefully like with anything else and uh, start slow and go high and titrate up basically. Uh, other entomony, we have ketamine. And the thing that you can do for the ketamine is give 10 milligram boluses essentially until the patient becomes unresponsive. And uh, of note, it does have uh, sm- stimulatory effects on autonomic nerv- nervous system as well. So this could be a good uh, setting of shock. And lastly, another thing you can use is um, midazolam or Versed. And uh, especially if you're starting low on your anesthetics, you want to make sure that a patient doesn't necessarily remember what happens uh, during the surgery. But again, if they remember it, it's a good thing because they didn't die. That's, that's pretty much it. It sounds bad, but that's, that's essentially the idea. So again, you could use uh, Versed to, to add on to your, your anesthetic. But note that it does uh, have a significant uh, cardiovascular depressant activity. So uh, be careful with that. Okay, so those are basically the induction agents. Next, we're going to talk about the paralytics. Um, so succinylcholine is still the actual gold standard for uh, rapid sequence inductions. And you still use the same dosing for that, like one mix per kick or so. So succinylcholine. Rocaronium, you're going to use the, uh, the RSI dose. So basically the double, the standard induction dose at 1.2 to 1.5 mix per kg. But the, the advantage of using uh, rocaronium versus uh, sucks is that it avoids undesirable side effects associated with the succinylcholine. So for example, succinylcholine is associated with increased intragastric pressure, intraocular pressure, intracranial pressure, and an increase in potassium. So if you're using rocaronium, you kind of are able to bypass those things. And nowadays with the, the advent of Sugamidex, you're, if for whatever reason you're not able to 
intubate or ventilate, you're able to reverse that uh, blockade with Sugaminex. So rocketronomia is definitely like uh, a viable option now in addition to uh, succinylcholine. And of course, uh, you want to have, regarding airway-wise, like surgeons to be on standby in case uh, uh, you're not able to secure the airway. And then the last part of the emergency airway algorithm is to do an emergency cricodiridotomy. Oh, I'm surprised I actually said that right. Next, and the last part of maintenance of anesthesia during trauma is the use of volatile anesthetics. And again, same theme. You want to start low and then titrate up. So like starting at however much their their blood pressure is able to tolerate, like 0.4, 0.5. And then from there, you just keep going up. As you're resuscitating, as your pressures are improving, you get to titrate the, the, the MAC up on your gas. So basically, like uh, when you start out, just start lower, uh, less than the MAC of gas, um, then go go higher. And it's important to note in hemorrhagic shock, the minimum MAC decreases about 25%. So again, you don't need as much uh, volatile anesthetics to keep the patient uh, asleep. And if anything, you're able to supplement with opioids as well, as it doesn't really affect your, your blood pressure as, as much as the other anesthetics. Okay, so the next section uh, we're going to talk about is monitoring during uh, trauma cases. And there's a few points that we're going to talk about. Uh, hemodynamic monitoring, urine output monitoring, oxygenation, organ perfusion monitoring, as well as coagulation. So first is hemodynamic monitoring. And uh, one of the most obvious things we're going to do during these cases, we're going to get an arterial line, both for the real-time blood pressure and management but also uh, you're able to get uh, repeated labs and including things like an APG. And generally there's many sites that you can try doing an uh, arterial line, but if you have like an abdominal or chest trauma, the, the ideal one to do is the right radial arterial line, just mainly because the possibility of cross clamping. But again, that's the ideal thing. It's in the cases where uh, you have damage to the, the right radial side, then obviously you can't do it and you just get it whatever you can. And uh, the great thing about arterial line as well is you're able to determine the different types uh, of information like fluid status from things like looking at the post-pressure variation, stroke volume variation, uh, especially if you're utilizing something like a flow track, which tells you different things like cardiac output, stroke volume, stroke volume uh, index, and all that good stuff, SVR, if you have a CVP. But again, uh, flow track is a wonderful tool, but it does have some limitations. So for example, FlowTrack works best if uh, you have a patient that's mechanically ventilated with tidal volumes over 78 cc's per kilo. The patient has a closed chest and they have a normal cardiac rhythm. So it's not as accurate if a patient is having some active AFib or something else like that. Okay, so that's an arterial line. Uh, next is a central line um, and give you, uh, can, could give you good information like central venous pressure. And then uh, obviously, if you have central line, you can also use it for volume resuscitation, especially if you have like a large bore central line, like a Big Mac or something like that. Next is the TEE, the transesophageal Geoprobe. And it's great, especially if you have it and you know how to use it because it gives you lots of information, things like telling you if there's any sort of septal or valvular damage, if there's any coronary artery injury, if there's like any tamponade going on, aortic ruptures. Uh, obviously, it tells you about ejection fraction, stroke volume. You can see any wall motion abnormalities, and you're able to calculate uh, 
pulmonary artery pressures, you uh, see uh, the presence of pulmonary hypertension as well. So lots of information you can get from TEE, but it's just require a lot of uh, practice and uh, technical know-how. Okay, so that's like hemodynamic monitoring. Uh, next is urine output, and as you know, you already know, is monitoring the urine. So you have a Foley in, and basically you want to go for adults. Uh, you want to go for 0.5 cc's per kilo per hour of urine output. And uh, the reason why we do this is, is is generally a good indicator of organ perfusion. It shows you different information, like from the color of the urine. It tells you there's hemolysis going on, skeletal muscle destruction, so like things like rhabdomyolysis. And if there's uh, blood in it, then you can uh, tell the urinary tract integrity. But the problem of using your urine output as a measure is the reliability of it decreases with prolonged shock. Okay, so that's a urine output. Next, oxygenation. Uh, obviously, for every single patient, we have our post-ox. Things to keep in mind is if you have the post-ox on the finger or the earlobe, they could be subject to decrease in perfusion, so you might not have accurate readings. So that's why like when I do all my cases, I like to have their perfusion index uh, next to the post-ox, just so I can kind of compare the two. And, you know, to kind of uh, avoid this, I haven't tried it myself, but this is something that I've read, is that you can place the post-ox onto the forehead. And this is plausible due to pulsation of the supraorbital artery. And apparently it's not as affected by decreased perfusion as it, it is for like uh, fingers and ears. Um, but the problem is it, it is affected by venous pulsation. So one thing you can do is just get a headband that exerts like 10 to 20 millimeters of mercury of pressure, kind of basically hold it in place. And then there's a, this new toy that uh, we are trying to get in, in, in my institution that uses multi-wavelength post-oxes post and that also is able to, in addition to telling you the oxygen saturation, but tells you like the hemoglobin and whatnot. So I haven't used it too much. Uh, it's just, it's a new thing in our hospital. So hopefully you get to use it soon. Um, but that's also an option to use for, for these patients. Next is organ perfusion, oxygen utilization. So as we kind of discussed earlier, using serial-based deficits and lactates that you drew from your ABG or you drew from your arterial line. An interesting thing that you can try to check the CO2 difference between the arterial sample as well as the antidal CO2 because apparently values greater than 10 millimeters of mercury after resuscitation predicts um, mortality. And this is because it's usually caused by decreased lung perfusion. So then it has like a high uh, CO2, con uh, PaCO2. And in addition to these, uh, values that suggest adequate organ perfusion is that we have a CVP of greater than 10 millimeters of mercury, a MAP of greater than 65 millimeters of mercury, and hemoglobin of greater than 10. And lastly, the thing that you can use to monitor a patient throughout the, the case is coagulation. So things like TEG and Rotom kind of discussed this in the in the first episode of this series. So I would encourage you to take a listen to that. And hopefully you learn some more stuff there. Okay, so the last thing we're going to talk about in this episode is the three phases of managing a patient in a trauma. So first phase is the uncontrolled hemorrhage phase. 
Second is the partial surgical control of the hemorrhage. And third is the hemorrhage is finally controlled by the surgeons. And then each of these phases has different clinical priorities and different strategies regarding blood transfusions, crystalloids, and using other things like pressors. So we'll kind of go through each of these one by one. And this one is mainly found in the Basics of Anesthesia book by Miller, not so much in the other two books. So I thought this was pretty unique. Okay, so again, phase one, uncontrolled hemorrhage. And the clinical priorities of phase one is to one, stop the bleeding. So the surgeons are there trying to stop the bleeding, calling for help if you're not, you don't have your team uh, there to help you, controlling the airway if it's not already done in the trauma bay, turn the FIO2 to 100%. And basically at this point, you're doing damage control resuscitation. And the main principles of damage control resuscitation are to one, have brief permissive hypotension, two, obviously stop the bleeding early, three, Early use of hemostatic products, so like the one-to-one-to-one ratio of blood products uh, via MTP. And four, you want to actually minimize the amount of crystalloids you're using. And there's a few reasons for this. If you utilize a lot of crystalloids in this early stage of uncontrolled bleeding, you can actually cause more bleeding. Because when you give more intravascular volume, you increase the arterial and venous pressures, which increases your cardiac output and which is the driving force for more bleeding. So you're actually making it worse by increasing the intravascular volume in um, the early phase of the, the trauma. Another thing with crystalloids is you can actually displace hemostatic plugs. You can dilute the clotting factors and you can decrease the blood viscosity. So again, early stage of trauma in an uncontrolled hemorrhage stage, you want to minimize your crystalloids. And all these principles is under the umbrella term of damage control resuscitation. Regarding blood products, again, the we're likely going to do MTP, use the one-to-one-to-one uh, ratio. Crystalloids, as we discussed, judicious use, so not so much in the early stage. And the other things to consider is to give one gram of calcium chloride for every three blood products you, you give to have large bore IV so it can help you with the, the resuscitation efforts. And lastly, um, you want to try to avoid vasoconstrictors at this uh, stage, mainly because if you use any pressors, you're actually going to increase the blood pressure and that's going to increase the driving force of hemorrhage. So you can lose more blood faster if you're giving any pressors at this particular stage. Okay, so that's uh, phase one, uncontrolled hemorrhage. Uh, now moving on to phase two, is a partial surgical control of the hemorrhage. And then the clinical priority is going to change a little bit. At this point, you can do tailored resuscitation. So this, is, this means that you're getting additional labs and you kind of adjust your, your resuscitation strategy based on what the labs are. You're going to continue to place supporting lines if you don't have it already, things like arterial lines, central lines, Foley, if that's not in already. At this point, you definitely want to prevent any hypothermia, again, because it's part of the triad of death. Things that you can do, toss in an esophageal temp probe, use warm fluids, use warming blankets or a bear hugger, and try to do upper and lower if possible. Increase the room temperature if possible. And then one cool thing is, if possible, do you decrease the fresh gas flow? Usually, like for if you're using sebaflorin or something, for the most part, you utilize a flow rate of two liters per minute. 
And the idea is, you know, it prevents the formation of compound A. But then that's more of like a laboratory thing. Like clinic, clinically, is that significant? Not so much, at least that's what I've been told so far. So you can actually turn down the gas flow. And by doing so, it actually preserves the amount of a heat in the body because you're not like pushing off a bunch of air and blowing off all the heat. So that's, you know, a fun trick. Okay, regarding blood products, essentially, like we said earlier, the tailored resuscitation, you can get repeat tags or rotums or whatever you have available to help determine coagulation status and you're going to help determine which blood products to give. And then uh, you can get repeat ABGs to t- tell you the base deficits as well as the hemoglobin to kind of uh, help you resuscitation and uh, whether or not you should uh, be transfusing more PRBCs. Now, at uh, this part, with partial surgical control uh, regarding crystalloids, you could start using more of it. So you can use it if a patient is hypovolemic. So for example, you see post-pressure variation, stroke volume variation. You can use crystalloids to supplement the, the blood that you're, you're giving. And as we discussed, using serial lactates or base deficits to kind of guide you in your fluid management as well. Other things to consider is like if you have cell salvage mechanisms or like in our hospital, we have cell saver. Definitely something to consider to use. And in particularly difficult cases, you can toss in a TEE to help you manage the hemodynamics. All right, so the last part of the three phases of the trauma management is when the hemorrhage is officially controlled. And the clinical priorities uh, of this stage is to restore the physiology, to fill the intravascular space, and basically have a stepwise deepening of the anesthesia. So as we discussed before, before, uh, you want to start low and go higher. So you can consider giving more fentanyl boluses, you increase the, the MAC of your volatile anesthetics, and if there's any other lines that you need, you can uh, do that as well. Uh, regarding blood products, basically, it's not as high of a priority as it was in the, in phase one, but in basically as needed per your testing. And then once you feel like the patient's uh, adequately resuscitated, you can deactivate the MTP. Regarding crystalloids and colloids, uh, basically continue to titrate that to the base deficit and a lactate. And lastly, this is when it's a good time to utilize your your pressors to maintain uh, the blood pressure. But hopefully at this time you are fully resuscitated with blood and then that dramatically improves uh, their pressures. Okay, guys, thank you so much for uh, making it to the end of this episode. I know it's a lot of stuff, but I feel like it's pretty exciting. Uh, Hopefully uh, you learn a lot. And uh, if you have the time, I uh, encourage you to do the post-survey now. Link in the description. And my fun fact for you today is it's impossible to hum while holding your nose. And to avoid sounding like an idiot, I will not try that. But you can try. All right, guys. Thank you so much. This is Scott, the Anesthesia Resident. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.